Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. You know, I was raised in a Christian home. And part of my Christian upbringing and discipleship meant I had to learn that I am not the center of the universe. And and also somewhere along the way, I began to realize that my story isn't actually my story. I'm not the king of the castle. I'm not the hero. I'm not the main character. Now that's a good thing because I'm not supposed to be the main character. I wasn't created to be the center. I wasn't created to hold all things together. Now, it's important to know that my story is not the main thing. My story is not the center. It's also important to know whose story is. The story of stories belongs to someone else. The story of stories, the story belongs to the King of Kings, the King of Glory. And you know what? His name is Jesus. Now, who is Jesus? Who Who is this? Who is Jesus and what's his story? Well, today I invite you to come and seek out understanding and why Jesus came. And to know Jesus is to know his story. To know his story is to know his mission. To know his mission is to know why he came. And if you know why he came, then you know who he is. You know what he is. You know his heart. You know his character. You know that he is king. Now this story, it begins with God. It is God's story. It is the king's story. The triune God, a God who exists uh, in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a Godhead who exists perfectly in community, relationality, love. God is a community. And God uh, is, is pleased with God's self. God is love. God is community. And a long, long time ago, before the beginning of all things, God created all things. Everything in heaven and on earth was created by God, all things visible and invisible. Now, earth was formless, empty. You can think of it as like a wasteland. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And God's spirit was there and it hovered over the face of the of the waters. And God then breathed out. He spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then God organized light and dark, day and night. And he continues to create and organize. Told in a six-day narrative, God makes all things seen and unseen. Creation means supermassive black holes and planets and stars. It means the spirit realm and angels. It means mountains and billy goats and oceans and dolphins and vegetation and fish and birds and all the sea creatures, the insects, the land animals. And in the midst of 
day six creatures, creations, in the middle of day six creations, God makes humans made from the dust, soil, Adam from the Adama. Humans are from the soil. And like every other creature, humans are unique, but humans are distinct. Male and female, we are made in the image of God. We are his icons, his reflections. Now, creator God, he he planted a, a garden in Eden. Eden means delight. And God puts a a garden, a delightful garden. It was the home of Adam. And these image bearers, God gives them the special task to co-labor, to co-govern with God. God is king, but he bestows, he entrusts his image bearers to co-govern the world. And as soil creatures... Humans are to till and to to keep the garden, to watch over it, to subdue the land. And what that meant in in the ancient mindset, that's agriculture. Cultivate the land and make beautiful things grow. God gives his image bearers, his humans, dominion. It doesn't mean domination. It means service and stewardship and care. And it was all very good. And then on the seventh day, it's the culmination of this creation week narrative. God blessed it and made it holy. And humanity is entrusted with the care of all creation and and we enter into Sabbath. And there's harmony. And Eden, there's delight. But then a serpent a spirit who opposed God and an evil snake, the accuser also called Satan, twisted up the words of creator king and it planted seeds of doubt into the humans. And ultimately it led to rebellion. And these humans, they usurped the rule of creator king. They chose their own way. God had placed in the garden uh, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God said, do not eat from this tree. This is is one tree. This isn't for you. Do not eat from this one tree. But they did. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then the man and his wife, they hid themselves in the presence of God among the trees in the garden. God was looking for them. And out of this scene, we get evil and and sin and violence and bloodshed and destruction. It all enters the world. The earth is cursed. Physical death, spiritual death become major problems. And the human heart is broken, is is twisted and and distorted. The the image bearing is, is still there, but now it seems to be smudged, at least on our end, twisted up. The harmony is gone. And God, he, he banishes the gardeners from the gardener. But before he, he does that, he makes this promise. Someday, God is going to bring 
rescue, restoration. Someday God uh, is, is going to send a human who's going to crush the head of the snake, whatever that means. Now, thankfully, the, the story doesn't end here because God is going to pursue humans. God wants to save humans. Humans will have another chance. And, and someday he's going to restore back these little kings and queens who are meant to co-rule, co-govern this world, to collaborate with God without any hindrance of, of rebellion. Someday things are going to be made right. Now, years pass by, and the human population increases, and there's some wonderful stories that, that happen. Generations pass by. But then God graciously picks this elderly couple named Abram and Sarah. They're from a city called Ur, which, best guess, is maybe modern southern Iraq. Abram and, and, and Sarai, God picks them and he says, hey, you're going to have a baby boy. Now, this is a little bit funny because Abram and Sarai are way beyond childbearing years. But it happens. She becomes pregnant. They have a baby boy named Isaac. Isaac means he made us laugh. He makes us laugh. So you just have to imagine uh, the, the old arms of Abraham and, and, and Sarah, they had a name change, and they're holding their baby boy, Isaac. And then God says, all families of the earth are going to be blessed through your family. And so this is incredible. Little baby Isaac grows up, marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob later has a name change, and, and uh, God gives him the name Israel, which means wrestle with God, wrestles with God, struggles with God. Now, Israel had two wives, and, and um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long story, uh, but Israel has a blended family, and there's 12 sons and, and one daughter that, that come along. And, and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And there's growth. And, and this family becomes big, 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 big family. And then over the years, the, this 12 tribes of Israel, this big family, they actually end up down in Egypt. The ancient name for Egypt, it, it means the black land due to the to the soil, the fertile soil around the Nile River. But they're down in, in Egypt, and they eventually become a slave. And for 400 years, that's a long time, 400 years, they are under the oppression. They are enslaved to Egypt. And they cry out to God, and God does hear them. And in God's timing, he raises up a man named Moses. And through Moses, God breaks Israel out of this Egyptian slavery. God is the hero in this story. He uses Moses, brings liberation, brings the people out of Israel. 
and God takes them out to the wilderness and he reinstitutes them as a nation. He covenants with them. And he says, I want you to have these ceremonies for purity. And there's some feasts. I want you to celebrate and remember the story. Have these feasts. God also gave them law, this prescribed way of, of living, the Torah. Why? To help govern them. And in the center of Israel's worship life, there was this big tent called a tabernacle. And this is where God would dwell. God would eventually give them land. They had a home. And through all of this, God is their king. God is the one who is ruling over them. But here's the thing. As time went on, the Israelites, as what they're known now as, they saw the other nations around them who have kings, and they wanted a king of their own. Now, it's a little bit funny, but God's like, you're wrong, but okay. He he goes along with their request, and they have kings now. They become a kingdom, a monarchy. Now, side note is most of these kings, they were arrogant. A few of them reflected God's character. Some were okay. A lot of them were, were rotten. Now, King David is one of the good ones. You might know his, his name, but still, you know, David is a descendant of, of Adam. You know, he, the, the rebellion against God, it still flows through David's veins. David still is a usurper. He doesn't live his life correctly. He was far from perfect. Yet, by the grace of God, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And God actually tells David that one of his descendants is going to reign forever. So that's important to know. One of David's descendants is going to reign forever. But as the story goes, the kingdom doesn't stay unified. It actually splits in half. The northern side is called Israel. The southern side is called Judah. And really what we see is this downward spiral. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. Now there's disunity. They are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And God raises up prophets, men and women who speak on behalf of God, prophets who, who speak up and, and, and say, hey, God is still king, God is still ruler, there's only one God. Turn back, turn back to the one true God. And after many warnings, God removes his protection. And the people of God, they, they become a conquered people. The people removed from their land. They end up in captivity by another foreign nation. Their city, their temple was destroyed. So in the garden, you know, humans were blessed to reflect God and they were entrusted with, with his rule. And then we have this big family and they're supposed to be a light to all the other families and nations out there. And they, they struggled we see this downward spiral, and, and then we have these kings. They were to cover, govern well, too, but that ended up being a, a failed system. And it kind of seems like God doesn't get the point here. Humanity seems like it's just destined to fail. 
destined for failure. What a sad story. What a sad, dark story. Well, in the midst of these dark times, God speaks words of hope through many people. And one of these was a man named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God, says this, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God promises to make a new covenant. God also promises to send a chosen servant. Speaking through Isaiah, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The faraway places will have hope. So there's Jeremiah and Isaiah. And then there's a Daniel. Daniel has this vision of beasts, and these these beasts uh, represent malicious governments. And then Daniel has this vision. There's a figure who is called the Son of Man. He rides the clouds into God's presence, and then he sits down, and he rules the world forever. And all nations and all people groups of every language, they worship the Son of Man. And you know, there's, a, there's these other prophecies that point to a Messiah. Messiah means kingly anointed one. And so in the midst of a long, dark story, there are moments of hope and joy. And many people, they just can't wait for this chosen one to get here, the Son of Man to come. Ratify this new covenant. When will God come and reestablish his rule? Well, those 70 years of, of, of captivity, they pass by, and a remnant of the people are able to return back to their homeland. And they rebuild. They rebuild the city of Jerusalem and their temple, but, you know, it just doesn't feel the same. And that feeling doesn't really ever seem to go away. And many generations pass by, the, the Jewish religion is built up and they started to add more rules to the religion and traditions and customs. Kind of ended up being a religion that seemed to just kind of control people, or for many it was kind of just empty religion. And just like other human histories, there's false leaders, there's corrupt leaders, there's false messiahs. God's word kind of just dwindles down. For 400 years, there's just silence. We haven't heard from God. And the Greeks came in and they ruled over the people. And then the Romans came and ruled over the, the Israelites, the Jews. Now the Romans, they, 
they allowed the Jews to practice their monotheism, their, their one God worship. They, they were allowed to maintain the temple. But you know, when is this kingdom anointed one going to come? Israel wasn't made to be oppressed by Roman overlords. There has to be more. When is God going to show up? Well, guess what? Suddenly, at the right time, God broke into history and did something that nobody was expecting. God became human. Incarnate by the Holy Spirit and a virgin named Mary, this human was born and was given the name Jesus, which means God saves. Jesus also had a nickname called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what does God saves and God with us tell us about who Jesus is? And one of the Bible authors uses this Greek idea and tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Word made flesh. The, the logos, the, the, the invisible mind behind all things has become human and lives here on earth, dwells here on earth. And this is pretty incredible. Is Jesus the Messiah? Well, God says yes. Surrounding Jesus's birth story are angel announcements that say Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And under protection of his earthly dad, Jesus is saved from a massacre and he becomes a refugee in his early life. Baby Jesus is, is a refugee and has to go down to Egypt, back to the black land. And then they weren't there for forever. They, they were able to come back and Jesus was able to grow up in a little town called Nazareth. But really, he is a nobody from Nowhere, And then around the age of 30, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. He is heading to the Jordan rivers to be baptized by his prophet cousin, John. Uh, Jesus is baptized, and when he comes up out of the water, the, the voice of the Father speaks over Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, hears his Father. This is my Son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. And then as he comes up out of the water, he is led by the Spirit, and he is out in the wilderness, and he is tempted. He is tempted out in the wilderness. Forty days he fasted. And the same tempter, the same confuser, the, the accuser who we met in the garden was there trying to get Jesus, but Jesus did not give in to those temptations. When Jesus wrapped up his 40 days in the wilderness, he was then filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit, he started his ministry and he started to preach the good news of the kingdom. What's the kingdom? Well, it's life as God intended, intended it to be. It's the rule of God lived out through our human lives. And so Jesus is bringing that recorrection, that that, that, that correction, that, that reestablishment. Good news, another word for that is gospel. And so Jesus is restoring identities, restoring 
kingdom identities, gospel identities back into humans. Jesus is also investing into a small group of men and most likely their families, these 12 disciples. Jesus is raising them up and he equips them and he teaches them. And Jesus also teaches the crowds. And so in the middle of nowhere, Roman Empire, around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus does his ministry. He was an amazing teacher, preacher, but he was also an amazing healer. Through, this, through the Spirit, Jesus was, was opening blind eyes. Lepers were, were being healed. The lame was walking. People were being set free from their physical ailments. And it's awesome because as Jesus would preach the kingdom, well, you can't have broken people in the kingdom. And so here are physical manifestations. Miracles are, are happening. Jesus is healing people. And Jesus, through all of this, his life, his ministry, he lived a life without sin. He knew no sin. Jesus was not a usurper. And then kind of skipping forward to the final week of his life, Jesus is king and he arrives into Jerusalem. God in the flesh is returning to rule over Israel and all families. Now the crowds didn't need to break their brains over what's happening. It was a cultural thing to celebrate when a king rides into the city. Well, Jesus, he's, he's king he enters into Jerusalem Jerusalem riding on a donkey, so it's a little bit different. But the crowds are there waving palm branches, and they shout praises and welcome. Hosanna, which means like save us, help us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so Jesus arrives into the city of Jerusalem. The king has returned and he heads straight to Israel's house of worship to clean it up. And then throughout the week, Jesus spends time confronting religious leaders. And he gives many teachings and prophetic insights about things to come. And you know, this, this whole city, they, they may have embraced Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday. But nobody there, nobody there, not even the disciples, really knew what kind of king Jesus was. He is the new Adam. He is the new Israel. The human who perfectly reflects God. His kingship, it is different. He's gentle. He's humble. He's a servant. And so in three years or so, Jesus did good. And he healed he rescued people from all sorts of problems, and he was an amazing teacher. But still, the Jews in authority and the Romans, they thought it would be best to kill him. For many, Jesus was a threat to religion, and why not? Perhaps a threat to imperial rule. Now, Jesus, he predicted his death a number of times. He knew it was coming. And he identified himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things, Jesus said. 
The Son of Man must be rejected, Jesus said. The Son of Man will be delivered into the teachers of the law, Jesus said. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So dear PMC Beyond, today we observe Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday and this week, as you trace the final moments of Jesus's life, you'll see Jesus, he'll experience an illegal nighttime trial. He'll be deserted by his best friends. He'll be scourged and beaten. The crown of thorns on his head, he will be sentenced to die by crucifixion executed, nailed to a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And a sign will be placed above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so as we think about the King's story, Creator King used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. The king's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, the temple. And now King Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who makes his dwelling amongst us, is here. But something seems to have gone horribly wrong. The king is on a cross. And hanging by three nails, Jesus even sends some kind of abandonment. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus seems to be like another human failure. And if Jesus is a failure, so is his kingdom. And Jesus, on the cross, he breathes out his last and he dies. He dies. It's a dark day. It's a long story. A long story of Israel. The story of Jesus. And it ends with Jesus dying on the cross. But that's actually not true. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. You're going to have to come back next week to hear the rest of it. It's the end of our story for now, there's more to come. There's more to come. But you know, in the beginning of our story, we were told that someday a human will come and crush the head of the snake. And that God is going to pursue humans. That God is up to something. That God is on mission. God wants to save humans. Humans will have another chance. And so I invite you to come back next week. You've got to hear how the story continues on. And I'll leave you with this. This week, this week, think hard about who Jesus is. If you want to understand who he is, seek to understand why he came. To know Jesus is to know his story and the long story of Israel, the story of the beginning of humanity the story of, of all things. By his grace, we get to know this story. We get to know him.
been a pleasure to be able to give you the super abbreviated version of this story so far. But this is the end of part one. Come back next week for part two. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you so much for joining us today in our worship gathering on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, We are in a three-part sermon series, and today is part two. Our sermon series is called We Have a Story to Tell. And uh, we are considering the story of stories, the, the story of God, the story about the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and of course, the grace of the Son, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus's story. And we've been saying to know Jesus is to know his story. And if you know his story, then you know his mission. And if you know his, his mission, then you know why he, he came. And if you know why he came, you know who he is. Jesus' story is revealed in our Bibles. And the Bible is a complex book. It's actually a, a book of books, a library of, of books. Uh, but this sermon series that we've been doing, we started last week, we'll continue on until next week as well. Uh, but this sermon series is built upon the fact, the premise, that there is a story arc in the Bible. There, there is a, a narrative. Jesus' story is not random. It doesn't just show up out of nowhere, but it comes out of the long story of Israel. Now, the Bible has two parts. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, from from Genesis all the way to the prophecies of Malachi, it's story after story after story from Israel's history. It's a story that has tribal rulers and, and judges and priests and prophets and kings and queens and villains and heroes. It's a story about righteousness and wickedness. And it's the long story of Israel that leads into the story of Jesus. And as one author points out, we can do ourselves a big disservice if we start reading the New Testament without understanding the the long story and the mission of God, which is to redeem the world from the effects of, of sin. And so to recap from from last week here, we saw creator king. He entrusted the first humans with this vocation to reflect God in this world, to to govern, to co-govern the world. But the bad news is they failed and they continue to flounder. And then out of all the families on earth, a little bit down the line, God picks one family, the family of Israel. They're called to reflect God to the nations. He he shores them up. He he forms them up. He gives them the law. He says, hey, this is how I want you to live. This is how you reflect me to the world around you. Well, they struggle and fail as well. A little bit more down the timeline, then there's the monarchy, the kings. God is going to rule through the kings. They are to reflect God. Well, as the story goes, the monarchy fails as well. So as we trace the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament, humanity just fails in its vocation of reflecting God. This sin problem 
is a really big problem. And then God does something amazing. God becomes human. At the right time in history, God personally enters the story through the man Jesus of Nazareth. It's like the author writes himself into the story. Isn't that so cool? God becomes a human. You know, in the garden, um, God walked with humans in the cool of the day. And then in the, the tabernacle, which was like a worship tent, God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle. And then now here with Jesus, God in the flesh, God as a human, he tabernacled amongst us. God is present. Wherever Jesus goes, God is going. Kingdom, the kingdom of God is walking on the earth. And so as we study Jesus and his story, as we look at his, his ministry, we see that Jesus does good. He heals. He rescues people from all sorts of problems. He preaches that God's kingdom is breaking in. It's arriving. God's way of life is turning people's lives around. Jesus shows us a new way to be human. This is what it looks like when God rules your heart and mind. That's the kingdom of God breaking into people's lives. That, as it turns out, Jesus is ultimately rejected. He was sentenced to die by execution, uh, crucifixion. Extremely cruel. It's suffering, you know, 100%, 10 out of 10. Like, this is the worst way to die. Extremely painful. It's horrible. On the cross, Jesus dies a horrendous death. And this is kind of where we, we paused last week. It seems like Jesus seems to be like another human failure. And so let's put ourselves in the story now. We, the rebels, we've executed Jesus. But let us prologue a little bit more about the cross. As, as Scott McKnight helps us to trace out, when, when Jesus was on the cross... What we, the rebels, didn't know is that Jesus was actually entering into our rebellion. Jesus became sin. Jesus entered into our rebellion. What we didn't know is that Jesus was, was he, he, he took on our sins. And the punishment that, that we deserve because of our rebellion against Creator King, Jesus took that upon Himself. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. Okay, Now, we don't have time to talk about all of these words that are surrounding the cross, like to do a full exploration of what is sin and, and punishment and wrath, all of that. We don't have time to get into that today. But really, what I can give you is think of Jesus like a sponge. A sponge. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. Like 100%. Think of your Easter basket. Who woke up with an Easter basket this morning, right? Your Easter basket with all of your sin eggs in there. That doesn't sound right. But, but like, we have a basket full of sin. What Jesus does, he's like, hey, dump out all of your eggs in your basket. Your basket is now empty. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Like a sponge, he absorbed all of our sins, all of our rebellion. His death forgives our sins. It empties our basket out. 
And because he absorbs 100% of that sin, it means that we get to be called right. We get declared right. That is the message, that is the power of the cross. Jesus' blood changed history. He was the perfect son of God. He knew no sin, but he entered into our rebellion. He became sin. And was nailed to the cross. We, the, the rebellious, we didn't know this. No one did. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, John, nobody knew this. And as N.T. Wright likes to put it, by 6 p.m. on Friday, the world changed. Sins have been covered. The fancy word is atonement. Atonement has been made. And especially this. No one knew that God could reverse the rebellion. That God could reverse death and restart humanity all over again. What was meant to crush Jesus and his kingdom forever was actually the way that Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom and, and usher in this new way of life. On the cross, heaven and earth were, were brought together. There, there was like a divorce in the, the garden, but now on the cross, heaven and earth are brought back together through Jesus absorbing sin, God makes peace with humanity. God reconciles himself. That's a relational word. God has reconciled the relationship. He, he wants to be with his humans. He wants to restore them. He loves them. He went to the cross for them. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple, it tore the curtain was the boundary line between God's holy space and sinful humanity. All right, big, it was a big fat curtain. Okay, it hung there in the temple. It was like an object lesson from God. The curtain tore. It was God's way of saying, hey, I'm reconfiguring this whole thing out. Like, like access to me has been reorganized. Okay, from now on, you go through Jesus. My son's work was sufficient. He stands between me and humanity. And God says, if you want access to me, you go through my son, Jesus. He is enough. What Jesus did on the cross, it worked. It's sufficient. And so in light of all the theology that's around the cross, to restart the world all over again, Following all of that, God raised Jesus from the grave on the third day. Friday's day one, Saturday's day two, Sunday morning, day three, on the third day, the first day of the week, Jesus is raised from the grave. Human failure will not have the final word. Jesus experienced a bodily resurrection, not resuscitation. But resurrection, something that happens later on in our timeline, like eschatological, uh, eschatology means like end times, something that happens down the line happened in the middle of history, and Jesus experienced resurrection. He wasn't abandoned to the realm of the dead, his body did not see decay, he was freed from the agony of death, yes and amen. It is impossible for death to keep Jesus down. God raised him to life, and, and, and many people were witnesses of this. Jesus is alive. And a big, 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 
big, big, big, meaningful part of this story is this. I want you to know that the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you today. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And the resurrection of Jesus, it marks the dawn of a new day. And this new state of being that we gracefully get to experience, it's found in the forgiveness of sins. That's the language that the Bible uses. The forgiveness of sins. Your sin basket has been emptied out. You're free to go. Jesus has absorbed all of it. Forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus, the prison doors of sin and death are flung wide open. The jailer has been beaten down. He's tied up, overpowered. You are free to go. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, as, as people come to Jesus and believe, as people hold to his teachings, as, as they pattern their lives after his, they will become his disciples. They will know the truth. And the truth will set them free. Jesus is free from death. And so can you. Jesus did not despise the cross so that you and I can be free. He says, follow me. Follow my ways. We'll work it out together. Let's go to freedom land. Like, become my disciples. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. And so, of course, Easter morning, what we're celebrating today, Easter morning, it was an amazing day. Nobody saw it coming. Jesus died on the cross and they did the thing, they, they took care of his body, they, they wrapped him up and, and all of that. They, they placed him in a tomb, somebody donated a brand new tomb cut out of, a, out of the stone, it was in a garden. Jesus was laid there, he's entombed, uh, he is enclosed, okay? But then Easter morning comes, and the stone is, ro- is, is rolled away, Jesus is resurrected, and, and as the stories. Uh, the gospel stories tell us Easter, mor- uh, Easter morning ladies were there. They were going to visit the tomb. And they noticed that the, tomb, the, the, that the stone is rolled away. And they're, they're like, wow, what is going on? Did someone steal the body? What is going on? They take off and they go and get the disciples. And of course, there's a story where two of the disciples get up. Run, one runs faster than the other. And they get there and all they see... It's just the grave clothes. His body is not here. Jesus is not here. He is alive. Resurrected Jesus. And he makes appearances to his disciples, to Mary Magdalene and others. Jesus makes appearances. And there's a scene where Jesus resurrected Jesus. He commissions his disciples to continue the task. Hey, bros, I've spent time discipling you. Like, I've I've taught you what I do. Now go and do what I did. Keep the kingdom project going. Keep carrying on the task. That's what it means to be a disciple. Be a disciple who makes disciples. The disciples later called apostles. Apostle means representatives. Go be a representative of, of Jesus. And then a couple days later, there's this really important day called Ascension Day. Now, for the longest time, 
what I could tell you about Ascension Day is essentially Jesus just floats away and disappears in the clouds. But this is a big day. When Jesus ascends into heaven, this is Coronation Day. This is Jesus going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. This is Jesus, the exalted, resurrected Christ, sitting down to rule forever. Ascension Day is huge. A couple days after that, then Jesus, the exalted Christ, sends his Holy Spirit. And as the wretched, the rebellious repent and, and come to God, as they, uh, as they turn their lives around, the Holy Spirit empowers them. And the community of God, this new family of humans, where Jesus is at the center, they are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me get caught up here on my slides. The church is born. People filled with God's Holy Spirit. Coming back to life. And they were devoted to, to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to fellowship time. And they ate together. They had meals. Church people love to eat together, right? They prayed together, right? Learning, fellowship, meals, prayers. That's the early church. That's what they did. They were the, the life of Christ uh, embodied. This, this group of people, this community of Jesus people. They went out and they loved and they worshipped and they did community together. They supported one another. They did acts of kindness and service. And the kingdom way continues to grow and it continues to spread out. And what we see is that this Church, this early church, was not a club. People were meeting the real Jesus. They met a loving Savior, and they were, and He was turning their lives around. This this new group of humans, this new society, a new kingdom society. Jesus and His Holy Spirit filled people. They are the new spiritual temple. You know, just yesterday, my sister sent me a text message, and she said, Hey, I have a dumb question. Don't judge me. Don't you just love that? <laughs> and she, she asked, Jesus was Jewish. How come we're not Jewish? That's what she, she sent me, that text message. Well, here's the thing. Well, for, for starters, in, in Acts 15, the church just, are, they, they figured it out. Hey, you don't need to convert to Judaism in order to follow Jesus. The good news is for everyone. Everyone is invited to come and believe in Jesus. Okay? It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what class you are, gender, like you get to come to Jesus. All right? 1 Corinthians 3:16. We are God's temple. The church is God's temple and God's spirit dwells in our midst. That's powerful. Garden, tabernacle, Jesus was here in the flesh, and now Jesus is here in spirit. And what was lost in the garden is now being restored back. Image bearers are being remade into the image of Jesus. Renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. And so the church, the, the family of, of, of God, we are called to witness. Witnessing is the work of exalting Christ by the Spirit through the church. And the church 
continues to do this. We, we are multi-generational, multicultural, and, and we move, and, and, and truth and, and grace is, is proclaimed, and more and more languages, and, and the, the message of Jesus goes on and on, and it goes out, and as time goes on, the church, the family of God, it continues to grow and grow and grow. And in, in, in line with Exodus 19, the family of God uh, is this priestly kingdom. In line with Isaiah 49, we are God's servant. In line with the Psalms, we are the worshiping community. We worship the King of Kings. And in case you missed it, how in the world did all of this come about? It came about through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. This is what the church has been proclaiming for the last 2,000 years, and we continue to proclaim it here today. Jesus died, he rose again, and he ascended. As we take a look at church history, churches were, were planted and formed. They hashed out theology, they wrote creeds, they defended the faith. They raised financial support, they, they dug wells, they built hospitals, the church has built schools and orphanages, and through the ages, we don't want to romanticize it, it has been difficult. There, there's, there's been some really hard times for the church. They faced persecution. The church is also far from perfect. The church has made mistakes. The church has partnered with Weird and wrong ideas. We have a history of, of dark moments as well. Terrible decisions made under the banner of Jesus. Yes, the church is far from perfect. There are things that we need to unlearn. But time and time again, this is why we keep coming back to the story. We come back to the main thing. We come back to the center of the story. The good news, we meet grace face to face. We're not perfect, but we know who is. We know his story. We know his love. We know his truth. We know his grace. We know his willingness to embrace enemies, to love and die for them. We know his mission. We know his work of reconciling the world back to God. We know that there is a story that is bigger than all of us. There is a big, big, massive purpose for all of us here in this room. So we let the story give us a good, a good vision of, of the good life. We, we let the good life shape our character. And don't stop there. We continue to tell others all about it. And so we must continue to come back and listen to the story. To live out the story. To tell the story. And in, in time... In God's timing, he will someday wrap everything up. The great marriage of, of heaven and earth will happen. A new Jerusalem will, will come down out of heaven. It's going to look like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. God's dwelling place will be among his people. God will permanently be with his people. The old order of things that we currently are living in right now. The old order of things that cause so much stress and pain. It's going to pass away. God will wipe every tear. No more death. 
No more mourning, crying, pain. No more crippling anxiety, depression. Forever and ever. God's going to wipe all of that out. And someday the king will say, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is our Christian hope. That the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who holds all things together will make all things new. In the book of Revelation, three times Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The king of past, present, and future. Is he the king of your heart? Is he the Alpha and the Omega of your life? And so if you're here this morning and you want to know Jesus, if you want to be a person of his story, a person who is alive and made new, if you want to be resurrected and live forever, well, Jesus says you don't have to wait for the end. He is Right now, resurrection and life. Today you can be a person of the story. And you can shape your little story around and inside of his big story. You can know the real Jesus. You can know why he came for you. You can know his mission to bring redemption Restored relationship. You can know his story. You can know him personally. You can receive the forgiveness of sins. You can believe in him. Bless you. You can believe in him and be alive today. The real you, the deepest part of of who you are, can be made alive. That, That deep part of you that just craves for that big story, that big purpose, that larger-than-life hope, yes, that part of you can be made alive, can be reborn, and you can be a Jesus person today. Do you know it to be true? But your story belongs to the author of life. Do you know that the author loves you? That he died for you? Do you believe this? How do you answer that? Do you believe? Do you all believe? And if you believe, then don't stop there. Because you have a story to tell. This is where we'll end for today. I invite all of you, all of you to come back next week to hear part three. We have a story to tell. We are people of the story. So, as we get started here today, does the name Ernest, excuse me, Henry Ernest Nickel, Henry Ernest Nickel, does that name mean anything to anyone? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I only just found out about him just the other week. Uh, he was, uh, he lived over a hundred years ago. He was a British engineering student who decided he wanted to write hymns. So he would go on to write 130 hymns, and some of them became popular. One of them is called We've a Story to Tell to the Nations. Do you know that hymn? 
We have a story to tell to the nations. And so this was written in the 1890s, and it kind of captures the, the, the Christian mood of, of that, that modern missions movement to, to get out all around the world and preach the gospel, preach Christ and him crucified. We have a story to tell to the nations. And so I want to highlight um, stanza three here. It says, we've a message to give to the nations that the Lord who reigneth above hath sent his son to save us and show us that God is love and show us that God is love. And then the refrain says, for the darkness shall turn to dawning and the dawning to noonday bright and Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. So this hymn this hymn helped bring about the title of our sermon series, We Have a Story to Tell. And this is our third and, and final part of our, our sermon series here. And, and what we've been up to, what this has all been about, is based on the fact that, that okay, the, the premise that the Bible points to a larger story. There is a story arc. Starting with creation and going to eternity. There is a story arc found in the Bible. On the other hand, on the other side of that coin, is also the fact that we are story-formed people. It's how we communicate. When we tell, hey, how, how was your day? You're actually telling a story. Okay, It might be a dry story, but you are. that's how we communicate. We are story-formed people. I do not have a textbook at home on my family history. There is no Smith family history book at home. But here's the thing. I do know my family's history. I know enough of it. Now, how in the world did I learn all of this? Well, it's through stories. Even stuff that happened before I was born, I've heard the stories. And guess what? That has shaped me. I have a family history that I am embedded in. It's there, there's memories there. Whether it, it, it's like in the, the subconscious too. You might not even realize that the memories that, I've, that I have that aren't actually my memories. It just comes through story. Story. We are formed through the stories that we hear. One of my discipling coaches, his name is Cesar Kalinowski, he teaches that stories build community. Stories challenge us. Stories spark our imagination. Stories um, teach through, the, through implication. And what I mean by that is, is something is suggested in the narrative, and then we chew on it. Oh, what's going on here in this story? Then we start to think about it. We, we chew on it. What's being implied? What's being implied? Okay, my, my mother just retired after... 30-some years of nursing. She just retired on, on Friday. And she's wrestling with that. And I actually, yeah, I was on the phone last night with her. She's kind of explaining, uh, was this the right time to retire? And I don't know, I, I feel weird. It's probably all normal, right? But then I actually, I bounced her to a, a movie, a story. I was like, Mom, you should watch Lord of the Rings. Like, <laughs> like or, or The Hobbit. Like, like just... I think what needs to happen is you need to go on an adventure. Like, just, like, I'm going on an adventure. Like, like just grab your, your pack and, and take off. Like, like, just 
the hospital is going to be there with or without you. Like, that's, that's nursing, you know. Like, your legacy is with all the... She worked in, you know, labor and delivery. So all those parents and babies, years and years of working with those people, that's her legacy. But now, like, you retired, time, like, time to move on. And, and so I used a story to, to help form and shape that conversation. We are story-formed people. And so to kind of recap where we've been, um, this, this sermon series strategically kind of hovered around Easter. On Palm Sunday, we started with creation, and then we worked our way through the entire story arc. We probably could have slowed down and spread this out over weeks and weeks and weeks, but we did it in two Sundays. And now today, we get to wrap things up. We get to consider how we are people of the story. So one way to think about the story, I'm going to teach here a little bit. One way to think about the story of God is to break it down into four main parts. And honestly, if it, of the last couple weeks here today, this slide right here, this is what, like, if you could take away one thing, I want you to know this. Here's the four basic parts of the Bible. There's creation. There's the fall. Then there's this long story of redemption, or some say rescue. And then eventually it ends with new creation, or some say consummation. Okay? Creation, fall, rescue, new creation. The four main parts of the story. Different scholars have, have written on this. I would, I would like to suggest a guy named Christopher J.H. Wright. He's a theologian. Uh, Chris Wright is a great resource uh, if you want to just explore more of this. Let's bounce over to Yale Divinity School. We have Miroslav Wolf and Matthew Prosman. They break it down like this. All right. They say there's a primary arc to the Bible, to the, to the story, you know, right? Okay, from creation to consummation. So that's that, that top line there. There's a primary plot. Consummation means being brought into completion. And so the, the main plot here is what was intended from the foundation of the world. There is a primary plot. But as we know, there's this, they call it a subsidiary arc. There's, there's this fall the, the sin that entered the world, the fall, now this redemption story subplot that, that happens. Okay, Now we have to deal with the effects of sin, or rather God deals with the effects of sin. And so that would be that, that dashed line underneath. And as Wolf and Crossman teach, the top main plot, it actually attracts the bottom arc there. That God is bringing about redemption. God is bringing repair. And that is the good news. God is bringing redemption. Redemption helps us get to where we are meant to be. And where does everything go? It heads towards new creation. Consummation. Redemption. God is bringing us back. God is repairing us. And so what are the main points of redemption History. I'm glad you asked. Let's go a little bit deeper. Redemption history. It's the long story of redemption. All right. 
for, for simplification, let's just start with Israel, uh, Abraham and Sarah. God calls this family. Eventually they become the big family of Israel. And, and then there's the exodus and the law is given. There's monarchy. There's exile, return, prophets, psalms. Wisdom is given. Essentially that is the whole Old Testament right there. But the story of redemption continues. Jesus arrives. The incarnation of God and Christ Jesus. His ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The story continues with God bringing, God giving the Holy Spirit. The birth of the church. Church on mission. And of course, finally, someday the the redemption story will wrap up with a future hope of new creation. That God will make all things new. And just one more way to think about all of this. I want to show you one more thing here, one more slide. Hopefully you're not bored out of your minds. One more slide to look at here. This slide here, it considers the significant biblical images of the home of God. And I kind of touched on this the last two weeks, but now we're just going to focus on it a little bit here. That in the garden, uh, God was there. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then we have the tabernacle, the tent. That's where God, his presence, dwelt. And then God shows up in Jesus. John chapter 1. God enters into the finite and fragile human story. And then it's the church. God's spirit is here, alive, in the people called church. And someday, Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, God will dwell with his people. He is our God. We are his people. And so the story of our faith is not about a God who checks out. It's not about a God who is far away, but a God who makes himself known. A God who is available. He is the God who saves. And none of us, none of us are beyond repair. We have a God who saves. A God who is committed And the story here, it begins with this thriving, flourishing garden, that's Genesis 2, and then it ends with a thriving, flourishing city, Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation 21. But here's the thing, in the center of the story, the center of the story, we have the cross and resurrection. And this is so important, that the climax of the story, like this this story that we're talking about, the climax of the story happened 2,000 years ago. Christopher Wright makes this statement about the cross and resurrection. He says, Here is God's answer to every dimension of sin and evil in the cosmos and all their destructive effects. The gospel presents us with with an accomplished victory that will ultimately be universally visible and vindicated. And so here we have this gospel story. At the center of the gospel is the cross. Happened 2,000 years ago. We just celebrated it last week. The cross and empty tomb. And so now a question is, okay, as we think about the cross and empty tomb, as we think about this good news, the gospel, how does this gospel story emerge in our lives today? And so this is where I'm going to lean on a theologian named Scott McKnight with his book, The King Jesus Gospel. It's a great book. 
But he's going to help us out uh, with five points to consider today. And so now let's get into it. The first point here today is that we must become people of the story. That might sound redundant, but I'll just say it again. We have to be people of the story. We must become people of the story. Scott McKnight writes, The gospel is all about the story of Israel coming to its resolution in the story of Jesus. And here's the best part. And, and then our letting that story become our story. And that last phrase there, I put it in italics, that, that last phrase, that's what this series is all about. Seeing how our lowercase s story fits into the larger capital S story of God. Two weeks ago, I borrowed from a theology, uh, um, theology professor named Brian Lister. It is important to know that we are not the center of the story. We are not the main character. Bouncing back over to Chris Wright, he gives this remarkable observation that the very first Christians were Jewish. And his point was this. They know what story they are in. They knew the story. Those first Jewish Jesus believers, they knew the story because they knew the scriptures. They also had this thing called Passover, which is what? It's a story meal. Once a year, let's eat and retell the Story Again, we're story-formed people. They have the scriptures. They have their feasts and festivals. They are story-formed people. Those first early Jewish Christians, they knew the story that they were in. All right? they, they had what we call the Old Testament. And they knew that the story so far, it reached a, a, a decisive and climactic moment in Jesus. They knew the story. And so for us today, we also, we, we must know the scriptures. So this is, this is a, a, an easy one for a pastor, right? Read your Bibles, right? That's, that's the easy one. Read it, like, read, it, read it like any other book. But here's the thing. It's not just reading it alone. There's actually a, a deeper reading that we're chasing after, all right? The second type of reading is when we are shaped by the story and mission of God. The story and mission of God that's found in the Bible. Okay? There, there's a deeper, uh, a second layer of, of reading that, that we, we start to get this deeper, thicker, like, story that, you, the, the, that we are, this, this story that we're embedded in. It starts to come out. We start to feel it. Things start to connect from Old Testament to New Testament, we start to, to see it. We get a vision of it. One way to, to kind of teach on this is, as I, I think about like an actor getting a screenplay. When they first get a screenplay, they just read it. All right? They don't have to act it out. They're just going to read the 130 pages or whatever it is of a screenplay. They're going to read it through. But here's the thing. When it, when it comes time to act it, Something changes. Why? Because they took it to the next level. They're not just reading the script. They're not just memorizing it. But there is a deeper reading. They become the story. There, there is a type of becoming 
that happens. They, they start, they, they act it out. They, they have a backstory in their mind. Maybe the director or the writer um, did not even give them those notes, but the actor themselves, they, they just start building a world inside of their head. They, they build this extra story that, that they live in, and they, they act it out. And so, that, so when we read the Bible, when we're chasing after this larger story and mission of God that we're a part of, there is this becoming that, that happens. All right? we, we become the story of God. We are the, the dramatization, uh, living out the story and mission of, of God, so to speak. So we must become a person of the story. And the second point is, well, we need to become people of Jesus' story, too. So we need to go deep into Jesus' story. And so as a church, let us continue to sink deep into those four Gospels, the story of Jesus. But here's the catch. To really understand the Jesus story, and really the, the New Testament as well, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament anyways, because the Old, the, the Old Testament, that's, that's where we find all these references and connotations and undertones that, that are found in the New Testament. We're going to have to understand the Old Testament as well. If you just want to study Jesus and Jesus alone, well, guess what? You're going to have to do your research and go back and read the, the Old Testament anyways. We are people of the story, people of Jesus' story. Another thing to consider here is Jesus' work on the cross. John 19.30, on the cross, before he died, Jesus said, it is finished. So one way to think about this is, as we dive into Jesus' story, we are diving into a finished story. There is a sense of completion here. We don't need to add or take away from Jesus. And so I encourage you to, to marinate. We love that word. Let's marinate in, in Jesus' teachings. And guess what? How did Jesus mostly teach? It was through story, right? Parables. Let's, let's really dive into these parables. Um, it's good to study Jesus, but also remember he calls us to follow him. Let's be followers and students of Jesus. Let's follow his patterns, his discipling techniques. You know, in three years, Jesus was able to equip and train and release his disciples. And I don't think Jesus would have set a model that was too high for us to attain. What did Jesus do? And can we do it today? Again, let's continue to sink deep into the story of Jesus. Third point here. We need to become people of the church's story. The story of Israel, it leads into the story that is finished in Jesus. And then the story continues on and on and on and on and on into the story of the church. And so let's be reminded of, of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All the way to Finland. Which means end of the land, Finland, right? So um, the story continues on and on, and it's supposed to spread all over the globe. And now we are in the age called the church age. And the church's story isn't meant to eclipse the gospel story, 
We must remember that we are perpetually listeners and, and tellers of the story. But with that in mind, let's also keep telling the stories uh, of, of how God is working in our lives, what God is up to in our lives, in the life of the church. And so I want to advocate for church history here this morning. I want to advocate for it. Um, I think uh, if... <laughs> When we have time to do so, or if anybody feels called to do this, I would love to teach or, or see a church history course taught here. I think there's so much good stuff to learn from church history. For the last 2,000 years, the gospel continues to be planted in different contexts, different cultures. And this is something that I am fascinated about. That the story that we're talking about the story is translatable. We don't have to read Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. You ever think about that? We don't speak the language that Jesus spoke. Right? It's been translated. As the late Andrew Walls reminds us, there's no general language here. We have to tell the story. We have to speak the message into a particular, specific language. Or let me put it this way. God wants his story to be heard and known in everyone's heart language. God wants to speak in people's heart language. Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The church continues to go. It's being built up. It is being raised up. The church, the church is still going. We, we see something different here in America, but worldwide Christianity is growing. You know, we have 2,000 years of, of church history, so many movements of God to know and learn from, so, so many theologians and practitioners to know and learn from. And I wish I could sketch church history right here, but we don't have space for that. We don't have space for that today. To do that today, but I do advocate for it. Um, if anybody is is interested, uh, Juan Gonzalez, Juan Gonzalez, he has a two part volume book, two books, two volume. He tells the story of church history. Uh, it's it's really good. That's Juan Gonzalez. There's also creeds. There's confessions. There's other modern statements. In short, yes, let's know church history. Let's know our story. Where does the easy church come from? What was before this denomination? What was before that denomination? Let's know this stuff. I think it's valuable. This is, this is our story. How has God worked in history? What is God up to in history? What is God up to today? Right? Fourth point. As people of the story, we're going to have to encounter other stories that might add or take away from God's story. Okay? This is a good reason why we want to keep the story of God afresh, because there are false stories out there. There's rival philosophies. There's hidden worldviews. Tons of voices all around us. We deal with it every single day. So what are some of the, the false narratives out there? Well, I'm going to toss... Uh, Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford, their book, uh, Hidden Worldviews. They have a couple uh, 
couple things to suggest. There's individualism, there's consumerism, nationalism, moral relativism, scientific naturalism, new age, you know, the teachings that we're all mini-gods and all of that. There, there's worldviews out there, there's ideologies out there, there's false narratives out there. The early church encountered it. Gnosticism was one of them. What are the stories that airbrush the, the central message of who we are? Is there any story that likes to kind of airbrush that out, kind of make it all fuzzy? We need to pay attention to that. We need to know our story. And yes, we are products of our time. We are not immune to non-Christian ideas that take us away from the gospel. But this is why we do baptisms, and this is why we do communion. This is why we pray and we worship and we meet here on Sunday mornings and we keep learning, we keep worshiping, we read scripture, we keep going back to the story, we go back to the scriptures, we go back to Jesus who offers us abundant life. And I'm not saying every non-Christian idea is bad, I'm just saying there are inadequate thought systems that we need to be aware of. If we're going to be shaped by story, let's be shaped by God's story. And the fifth and final capstone point is this. Trust the story-shaping process. Trust the process. As in, as we live out our story, inside of God's story, it's a lifestyle. It's a journey. It's a transformation process. In his book, The Power of Story, uh, Leighton Ford, he he gives us a four-part breakdown as we trust the process, as we embrace the story. Well, first, we need to hear the story. Again, that, that point was made you know, three weekends in a row now. We need to hear the story. We need to tell the story. We need to keep this fire burning. Second, the story then produces a vision. It's a vision of the good life, the kingdom of God, right? God's way of living. Hearing the parables of Jesus, for instance, it gives us a vision to consider. We get an image of what the kingdom of God looks like. So hear the story, get a vision of the good life. Third, the vision of the good life it then forms our character. As God's, God's kingdom breaks into our hearts and mind, then we're led to repent. And we turn around and we come back to God and we believe in the good news. And this kingdom of God, this kingdom stuff that we're chasing after, it changes us. It shapes us. It turns us around. And then as our character changes, as we go through the transformation process, the inner parts of us change. And sometimes this takes a while. There's bumps and bruises along the way. But God is faithful and we continue to chase after transformation and we do all of this in a framework of grace but as the as the inner man changes the inner person changes inside of us and guess what we get to tell others what god is doing in our life this is what god is up to we let our redemption show we tell our story we tell god's story and really our life turns into one big exercise of show and tell show and tell we become people of the story, people of Jesus' story. Let's know church history, know the church's story. We're going to have to encounter false stories. And let us not lose hope. Let's keep 
trusting the story-forming process. And so here at the end, we are story-formed people. Henry Nipple was right. We have a story to tell to the nations. There's a story to tell. There's power in the story. There's purpose in the story. There's a promise in the story. There's a person in the story. We are people of the story. And so may I summon all of you here today. You can know that your story is a part of God's story. The storyline of the Bible, so to speak, is still happening. It continues on in our lives with your story. We have a story to tell. And everyone loves a good story. Stories draw us in. They speak to us. Again, they, they, they can challenge us. They, they make us cheer for the underdogs. They can make us gasp. Stories can move us. So let's continue to tell our stories. The story. It is the very power of God to bring salvation bring men and women and children into the kingdom, the kingdom of love and light. Let's pray.